All right. Let's go, girls. Dun, dun, da, da, dun, dun, dun. We're not there yet, but... This this is, the, that seems the, like the proper way to start it this does. episode. It does. I don't... We can just introduce ourselves and cut to the chase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Bethann. And I'm Leah. And this is She Will Rock You. Where did they get in a dub in a CBS executive meeting? No. Bitch, don't touch my thermostat. <laughs> the ghost be like, hold up, before I haunt you, let me turn down the thermostat. Who is this band? We're on page one, guys. This is She Will Rock You. Obviously, if you haven't figured out, we're talking about Shania Twain today, which is one that I've had on my to-do list for a very long time. Very long time. And as you will become aware, it's very timely to do because I think this podcast episode will drop the Wednesday before her new album comes out. Ooh. And I didn't really plan that on purpose, but it just worked out that way. Yeah. So yeah, let's just cut to the chase. We're going to start talking about Shania Twain, who was actually born... Eileen Regina Edwards. That's not anywhere remotely near Shania Twain. No, it is not. Um, we'll get there. Uh, she was born in Windsor, Ontario. She is Canadian, if you didn't know. On August 28, 1965. She has two sisters, Jill and Carrie Ann. Her parents divorced when she was two, and her mother moved to Timmins, Ontario with all of her daughters. There she married Jerry Twain. Okay. And they had a son named Mark together. Jerry legally adopted the girls, and they changed their surname to Twain. Uh, she grew up with both of her parents, loving music. They listened to a lot of like old-time country music, including a lot of Dolly Parton. Mm. And she got a lot of inspiration from her rags-to-riches story. Um, Shania's Twain's family was very, very, very broke. Like They were constantly worrying the power was going to get turned off off the water was gonna get turned off where were we gonna get food um but she always had music as an escape from all of this when when she was about four or five her mom heard her just naturally harmonizing with whatever song was on the radio and she was like that is a talent that we should probably develop because that just doesn't happen right and so she bought her a guitar and she started playing guitar at the age of eight um, she would carry it around everywhere. I think she had some formal lessons, but a lot of it was just practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, but like I said, she had a difficult childhood. Her parents did not have good-paying jobs. Food was very hard to come by in their household. Um, but she was terrified to tell anybody about this because she feared that her family would be broken up. Aww. So she just carried the burden of taking care of her siblings a lot. Um, and her. The marriage between her mom and her stepfather was not great. Um, From a very young age, they fought. Um, You know, classic story of they'd try to leave, they'd come back, they'd fight. Just the never-ending cycle. cycle. Um, And her mother also really struggled with bouts of depression where Eileen would have to, you know, pick up the slack and take care of her younger siblings. So she eventually convinced her mother to take her all the kids and run away to a homeless shelter in Toronto. However, she did eventually return to live with Jerry with the kids in 1981. So once they moved back in, they're living in Timmins um, and they're fostering this, this musical talent that young, young Eileen has. And so she starts singing at bars at the age of eight. Jeez. To help pay her family's bills. Aww. She often earned $20 doing this. She would play 
like late night slots, um, getting most of her tips between midnight and 1 a.m. Mm. Because she was only allowed to play after the bar had finished serving alcohol. Aww. Because she's eight. They kept her up that late? So her stepdad actually didn't approve of any of this. He didn't want this to happen. Thought it was an environment that she shouldn't be in. So her mom would wait until he went to bed, go under her room, wake her up, and sneak her out without him knowing. Jeez. So they could make a little bit of money. And she was dedicated. She would keep at any given moment a hundred songs in her repertoire so that no matter where she was playing, the house band always had something that they could play. Yeah. And she'd be able to take audience requests. At eight. At eight. Holy fuck. Yeah. Um, she has like since expressed that she really hated singing in those bars. Um, but it was kinda like her own version of performing art school because like they weren't gonna be able to afford private art yeah. school for her she said my deepest passion was music and it helped there were moments where i thought i hate this i hated going to bars and being with the drunks but i love the music so i survived she also during this phase of her life started to play with creating and writing songs which she very quickly learned was very different from performing them and started kind of to hammer out the first few bad songs that you mm-hmm. know everyone writes so while she's in high school at Timmins High and Vocational School, she joins a local band called Longshot, which covered Top 40 music. That's all you, we get out of them. Mm-hmm. They were a cover band. Uh, she eventually graduated from high school in June of 1983 and was like, I'm going to start a music career. Longshot did not last past graduation. Shocker. <laughs> it was a long shot for <laughs> It was a long shot. Don't name your band Longshot if you would like to be successful. And so um, she gets approached by another cover band called Flirt and ends up touring all over Ontario with them for a while. She started taking singing lessons from a Toronto-based coach named Ian Garrett. And because she has no money, she would clean his house as payment. Hmm. During fall of 1984, her talents were noticed by a Toronto DJ named Stan Campbell, who wrote about her in a country music news article saying... Eileen possesses a powerful voice with an impressive range. She has the necessary drive, ambition, and positive attitude to achieve her goals. Oh, that's nice. While she's doing this, she's she's got to be playing some country music on the side and not this cover band because she's singing a country show of some kind. I don't know exactly what. Mm-hmm. Um, in Sudbury, Ontario. And semi-famous Canadian country music singer Mary Bailey watches his performance and says, I saw this little girl go up on stage with a big guitar and she immediately blew me away. She was performing Willie Nelson's Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain and her voice reminded me of Tanya Tucker and had such strength and character and a lot of feeling. And I thought, she's a star. She deserves an opportunity. I must have this out of order because the next bullet says she's 11 at this time. So that's when she got discovered by Mary Mary Bailey. That's what happens when you uh, write this in one manic session. Oh, that will do it. <laughs> um, so she played some songs for Mary Bailey, and Mary Bailey mentored her a lot as she went through high school. So by the time that she gets to this cover band age, she's got all these people just pouring into her. She's got her vocal coach, Mary Bailey, mm-hmm. cover band people, um, her parents. But here's the thing. She really wants to be a rock star. She wants to sing rock music, write rock music, dress like a rocker but her parents are like no 
you need to be a country star. She's like, I don't want to be a country star. Yeah. So this is a constant point of contention between her and her parents. But Mary was like, you know, maybe you don't need to be a country star. You can experiment. So she pushed her to do that. And then all of a sudden, on November 1st, 1987, her mother and stepfather are killed in a car accident. (gasps) Holy shit. She's 22. Her entire world comes to a screeching halt. She doesn't know how to function, what to do. She leans on Mary heavily for support, and she ends up having to move back to Timmins to take care of her siblings. Oh, my God. Yeah. She um, doesn't know what she's going to do because she has no job experience. She's only ever played music. And she, through her connection with Mary Bailey, she ends up packing up all her siblings and moving from Timmins to Huntsville, where she gets hired at the Deerhurst Resort. And this is kind of like a Greenbrier, where it's like a really fancy rich people resort. Yeah. And it has an off-Broadway musical review type thing that they do. And she had never done stage shows, nothing beyond herself and her guitar. And she's got about five minutes to learn this entire new persona. Um, But it paid really, really well. Mm-hmm. And let her support her three siblings. And so she took it, got the experience, put her siblings through high school and got like valuable show experience out of it. But she has to put her career on the back burner. Yeah. She would uh, write at night uh, in her free time and just keep practicing in hopes that one day like she'd be able to pursue music again. Um, and then eventually that day does come. And she calls up Mary Bailey and says, you know, I'm going to do what my parents wanted for me and pursue country music. By the time her siblings move out on their own, she's assembled a demo tape of her songs and um, her manager sets up a showcase for her to present her material. Her manager at the time is Mary Bailey. So she's a woman trying to make it in country music with a female manager. Uh Uh-oh. So you can imagine how seriously they they took her. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... She does catch the attention of some labels, including Mercury Nashville, who who signed her pretty quickly. And during this time, she changes her name to Shania. I don't really know why. She just chose it. She just chose it. So there's... On Wikipedia, they make like a weird obsession over her lineage because her stepfather is part Ojibwa native. Mm-hmm. She's not by blood, but she is because of her adoption by him. Yeah. And supposedly Shania means on my way in that native language, but that's not true. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's just someone spitballing on Wiki. That's what she told people at one point. I I don't know. She, before Right as she gets signed, she changes her name. It's her stage name. I don't know what to tell you. I don't have a good reason for it. So she goes to Nashville to record her first album and very quickly has to accept the fact that she's a very small fish in a very big pond right now and has to sign up almost complete creative control over this first album to her label. They tell her what to sing, when to sing it, how to dress, what the cover art's going to look like, how we're going to promote it, like everything. She doesn't even have a co-writing credit on any songs on Mm. this album. Um, And like I said, she was a female artist with a female manager. They weren't taking her seriously. She had to work three to four times as hard as the average guy just to even like get in the room, much yeah. less be heard. Um, and so it, she just didn't really enjoy this first album process. Uh, it also didn't help that like 
women in country at the time, and still to a point to this day, they have to present these good family values and like be good role models. Whereas Johnny Cash can get up there and sing about, you know, shooting a man in the head and no one bats an eye. So there's this classic double standard going on. Um, but she eventually gets to the point where the album's done and the her self-titled debut album, which has the cutest little cover. She's got like a like an Eskimo jacket with a big floofy hood and then a ski dog or a sled dog oh, next cute. to it. Very Canadian. Yeah. They were like, this is your Canadian country artist. <laughs> um, that is released April 20th, 1993. It's only released in North America and but it gets her an audience outside of Canada where she'd been making a name for herself up until now this album only reached number 67 on the US country charts but it did get positive reviews from critics oh, that's good not a commercial success um but since you know her rise to fame it has gone platinum like just hmm. in back sales yeah uh, it was eventually released in Europe, where it was more successful than it was in North America. Interesting. She won Country Music Television Europe, which I didn't know that was a branch, uh, Rising Video Star of the Year Award. In her autobiography, From This Moment On, she says that she, you know, hated working on this album because she had no control. Oh, sorry. She had no control except for the one co-write she got mm. for the album on God Ain't Gonna Get You For That. But she did get one ounce of creative control in this this album cycle. And that is the first music video she recorded for What Made You Say That. They were kind of just like, eh. Do what you want. Do what you want. Like, no one's going to watch this. And I haven't watched the video because I just didn't have time because she's got so much to cover. But the video is apparently super sensual to the point where CMT didn't want to air it. Really? Yes. Damn. But by doing that, she became a disruption. Ooh. And people pay attention to her. So she's in this lull now between she's got to make it or break it because it's a sophomore album. And the first album did okay. Mm-hmm. But you got to make a splash in the second album or they're not going to keep you because they can go get 15 more of you down the street. Yeah. So rock producer Robert John Mutt Lang who produced for ACDC and Def Leppard, somehow gets a hold of Shania Twain's debut album. And he's like, I see something special in this girl. I want to work with her. So he offers to produce and write with her. They end up having like three or four weeks of really long telephone conversations. And they end up meeting in person at Nashville's Fanfare. I don't know what that is. (laughs) In June 1993. Well, while this is happening, she's not really telling her label, like, hey, I'm talking to Mutt Lang. Yeah. And they're like, do you think we should drop this girl? Because she's just another girl in country. And she's like, no, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're going to make this next album. We're going to make it with with Mutt Lang. And like, it's going to be great. I promise you. And they're like, okay, like, sure. Why not? Yeah. What do we got to lose? And so... Very early on in this process, she has a meeting with someone in the record label who makes these decisions, and they played some demos, and he just said, holy fuck, do what you want. Go work with Muttley. There you Clearly go. this works. So they, two of them, Shania and Mutt, get 
very, very close within just a few weeks. They end up getting married on December 28th, 1993. What? They met, got to know each other, wrote an entire album, got engaged, and got married in a six-month span. Are they still married? No. Oh. So the two of them wrote or co-wrote all the songs that would eventually create her second album, The Woman and Me. Great album. Amazing album. And the two of them just worked together. He listened to her to know how to bring out the best parts of her. She got him to show off parts that she wasn't allowed to show off in the first album. They were a dream team. This album was released on February 7th, 1995. Of the 12 tracks... Eight were released as singles. That's big. The album's first single, Whose Bed Have Your Boots Been Under, went to number 11 on the Billboard Country Charts. She wanted to release Any Man of Mine, but they were like, no, you have to release Whose Boots first because it's safer and more country sounding. And she was like, no, I want to knock the door down, not just shuffle through it. Yeah, and what the fuck do record labels know? (laughs) If we've learned anything on this podcast, (laughs) they know fucking nothing. Don't listen to your record label, guys. No, don't. So this was very quickly followed by Annie Man of Mine as a single, which then uh, got her her first country top 10, her first number one hot single, and also cracked the top 40 on the, the Billboard Top Hot 100. And for the video of this... She got creative control again, which was smart, because through this video, she got to work with a real Hollywood director named John Derrick. This video slays. Like, there's a bit in her documentary where his he has since passed, so they have his wife talk about it, mm-hmm. and like he had a very much a reputation for commanding people and just being like, you're going to do it this way. And the girls would do it. But Shania was like, no, no, that's going to look stupid. We're going to do it this way. And they were nose to nose at one point arguing about how they're going to do it. And he's finally like, fine, if it looks like shit, it's your problem. Oof. And, he, you know, they they did the shot and he was just like, fine, you're right. There you go. And his go. wife was like, he didn't say that very often. <laughs> so because she did such a good job on this video and her creative vision worked so well, for the next video, they upped the budget just a little bit. And they sent her to Egypt (laughs) Uh, to film The Woman and Me. And when they gave her the money to do this, she knew that she was entering a space where she could be competitive on a global scale and not just a national scale and knew that the album was going to change the face of country music. And it did. As of 2007, the album has sold more than 12 million copies in the United States it's certified diamond by the RIAA. And it, I mean, at the time, it was just a huge commercial success to begin with. So going into her third album, she knows that what she had been doing was great. But it was only great for country. It wasn't mm-hmm. making Billboard Hot 100. It wasn't getting her international fame and fortune. So she made the tough decision to part ways with Mary Bailey and choose a new manager John Landau to help her on her path to like superstardom Mm -hmm. and she gave him three goals at their very first meeting when she interviewed him she wanted to cross over to pop wanted to be an international superstar and wanted to be a top touring artist she hasn't toured to this point wow at all that's crazy um which everyone was like you're crazy for not touring Mm -hmm. and uh you're leaving a lot of money on the table Specifically me, your record label. I would like to make that money, please, and thank you. Yeah. 
But she was did not want to tour until after her third album because she wanted to have enough songs to not have to do any covers. Oh, that's smart. It would be an entire tour, big scale, just her stuff. Mm-hmm. So they go and work on the third album. Uh, and when they, like, Mutt and Shania just kind of lock themselves up in a room and do the whole album, they emerge. They play it for manager John. And when he's listening to it, he's, like, visibly shaking because he knew every song was going to be a hit. He had never Jeez. heard. He's already old at this point. He's really old in the documentary. He was already old at this point, and he'd been in the industry a long time and was super jaded. He's like, I had never heard anything like this. Like, this is going to change like music. So the album, Come On Over, is released in 1997, and she, she does it. She crosses over from country to pop. Of the 16 songs in the album, 12 were singles. And, like, the first two singles did okay. It's the third single, You're Still the One. Ah. Uh, You're still the one you. That's a good song. It is such a good song. She broke, every, it broke everything. Um, and it was a gamble to even release this as a single. Because up until this point, her biggest hits had all been upbeat. Like, mm-hmm. whose bed have your boots been under? Like, they're not slow songs. But this song, something about it, especially international audiences, latched onto it and ran with it. It's a great song. Um, that whole also, album is amazing. It's, it's I remember listening album. to that on cassette with my mom. I have listened to this album a lot this week. I've listened for three days. I listened to nothing but Shania Twain and Kenny Chesney <laughs> this past week. So uh, it's been great. It's also one of our more personal songs. It's actually about her relationship with Mutt because a lot of people didn't believe it's going to work. Like, why would a rock producer go for a country singer? Right. Why would... It, there, there's an age difference there, too. Like, why would this... Why would he care about you? Like, you guys have nothing in common. And, you know, they, they made it. Like, obviously, they work. They work very, very well together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's around this time that she gets the dreaded interview question of, how is Mutt responsible for your success? There it is. And she thought that was stupid. And watching her answer these questions is great because she's so annoyed. <laughs> and she's just like, you know, we're just good at collaborating. Like, he brings out the best parts of me. I bring out the best parts of me, him. Like, it's just mutual. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Don't ask people that. If you're listening. Um, and once again, the videos are where she succeeds. She's like the first person who ever crosses over from CMT to MTV. You don't yeah. make that jump. Yeah. And, and until Taylor Swift, I don't right. think it done again. Done. Done it again. Done again. I was just thinking that. And get this: all the videos from this album, she edited those herself. Edited. She got Holy the raw footage shit. from the videographers and just said, "Nope, I'll take it from here." Holy cow! Good I mean, she for may have, her. she may not be the one clicking the button. But she's making the call of like, yeah, cut what this, stays put in. this here. We're gonna use this shot here. Good color grade for this. Her. Like, I love that. Um, this is also where we get the iconic cheetah print bodysuit. Yes. And we can't talk about this album without talking about man. I feel like a woman because this was the songs like this. I mean, we live in a day and age now where like we have. As recent as Miley Cyrus's Flowers. Like, mm-hmm. we have 
women anthems were like, hell yeah, do what makes you happy. Be yourself. We didn't have that 1990. What year are we in? Seven. Seven. This freaked people out. They didn't like it at first. You know, uh, don't be ashamed of not expressing yourself just because you might be too much. Like, if she can get up there and wear a leopard print bodysuit, you can do what you need to do. That's, that's put that <laughs> fucking on a mug. <laughs> <laughs> this album peaked at number two on the Billboard 200 and stayed in the charts for the next two years, going on to sell 40 million copies worldwide. See, that's talent right there. Making it the best-selling album of all time by a female musician ever. Yay, Shania! Ever. Oh, that's awesome. That makes me happy. It's so good. Um, and she continues to break international boundaries for country music and female crossover artists. It's the ninth highest selling album by any type of artist in the U.S. and the top selling country album in history. Songs from this album won four Grammy Awards, including Best Country Song, Best Female Country Performance. Um, and then she won Grammys. Oh, Mutt also won Grammys for the production on You're Still the One and Come On Over. So as of 2012, it's sold... This has probably increased significantly since 2012, because mm-hmm. that was nine years ago. It has sold over 20 million copies and been certified double diamond by the Damn. RIAA. Holy shit. But up until this point, despite her chart success, she still has not been on a tour. She about to reap in the money. Well, she knew it was a lot of pressure on the going out on tour because she had to knock everyone's socks off because she had put off touring for three albums and gone out there and failed she could never show her face again right like that would be the end of it um but thanks to all that bar and expensive resort vegas show experience she was able to just go out there and kill it yeah i bet but at the end of the tour she and mutt moved to switzerland and she has a baby oh okay their son who's named asia spelled aja I hate it personally. Not my baby. Uh, and she puts her career on pause. Okay. Un- kind of unannounced to just be a mom for a couple years. Like, she and Mutt were still recording, but it was it was not to the level it had been. Yeah. She would basically, you know, be a mom all day, put the baby to bed, and then slip down into their in-house studio for a couple hours at night and record some vocals, um, but just really focused on being a mom. So for two years, they kind of work in this pattern. Two years? I don't know what year Asia was born. We'll say two or three years. Um, But eventually, Up is released on November 19th, 2002. And this album, I have vivid memories of and my little Walkman. (laughs) 2002 Walkman. Because this was such an interesting album. This album has three different discs. And each disc is a different version of the album. There's the green disc, which is the country slash acoustic version. There's the red disc, which is the pop slash rock version. And in international versions, there's a blue disc, which replaces the the red disc. Some versions have all three. It's very confusing on Spotify. Hmm. Let me tell you. And the blue disc is a world dance version that is edited in the style of like Bollywood music. Okay. Like Indian dance music. It was a very interesting choice. Did very well in the international market. Um, it was give, The album itself 
was given four out of five stars by Rolling Stone magazine, debuted at number one in the Billboard charts, and sold almost a million copies in the first week, stayed in the charts for five weeks, and this was her third successive Diamond album. Wow. She's the only artist to ever achieve this. It's one thing to have one Diamond album. Yeah. It's another thing to have back-to-back but to have three in a row yeah. when you've only done four albums... That is pretty wild. ...is insane. It's it's fascinating to me that no one has ever done this other than her. Like, you think of artists... Right. ...that should have done it, but they got a flop in there somewhere. It's crazy. The most successful song from this was Forever and For Always, which was the fourth single of the album. It was number one for a really long time. I'm not going to go into specifics. Because of the success of this album... In January 2003, she's a Super Bowl halftime performer. Okay, I remember that. But she gets gypped. So listen to this fucking set list. Shania goes on and does, Man, I Feel Like a Woman. And she does Up. Then out of nowhere, Gwen Stefani pops out of the middle of the stage. Yes, I remember this. We were talking about this. And they do Just a Girl. And then out of nowhere, Sting appears. Yes, (laughs) I remember this. What the fuck? We covered that in the No Doubt episode. I I do remember that. It's not fair. She was billed as the halftime show. And then taken by other two. And then Gwen Stefani shows up. And critics at the time were like, oh, uh, Shania should have never, I've never played. Like, No Doubt and Sting were the best part of the show. Shania was just boring in there. I went back and watched it. It was not bad at all. Like, it just was chaotic. Mm-hmm. But this was also around the time that we also got uh, the Steven Tyler, Britney Spears, Run DMC. Oh, shit. I forgot fiasco, about that. Fiasco. So, you know, whatever. Justice for Shania. But then, so critics complained about Shania Twain's performance, but Shania Twain fans complained that, like, she was supposed to be the main attraction. Mm-hmm. Why are no doubt and sting here? Let's plan these things better. Right. Whatever, whatever. So around this time... That this album cycle is coming to a close, Shania Twain is out on her Switzerland property in the woods and gets bitten by a tick. And she gets Lyme disease. Okay. Um, and she's trying to tour at this time. I don't know if she's touring or just like playing some some shows. And she noticed she would get like really dizzy and she would have these half second blackouts that would occur every minute. She just would lose vision for, <gasps> for just like a beat. But it was happening. Oh, jeez. Um, Lyme disease can do that? Yeah, Lyme disease will fuck you up. Holy crap. And so she has to take... She ends up taking a break for almost two years. And at the time, no one knew what it was. Like, she's just really quiet and really private. It only really came out in the last couple of years that this is where she was. She mm-hmm. had Lyme disease. Um, and she would keep coming into interviews and being like, yeah, new music's coming soon, new music's coming soon. And then nothing would happen. And everyone's like, that's weird. What's happening? Well, she does her Lyme disease treatment. And she recovers 100% physically. But she lost her singing voice. She couldn't sing. She could talk. Her voice talking kind of sounds like, still to this day, still kind of sounds like she's about to cry. Her, she has. Um, what? There's a word for it. I'd, it's like the paralyzing of the vocal cords. Yeah. Um, she couldn't sustain singing. She Through sing. Lyme disease? It'll fuck you up. Holy shit. I thought it just made you tired. No. It can destroy your joints. Like, name a symptom. Lyme disease can probably cause it. This is why I fucking hate nature. Takes her a bioweapon, and I will defend this. Um, This is why I don't go outside. 
but her voice didn't recover. So she couldn't record music because she couldn't s- sustain it long enough. Um, she couldn't perform because she was scared and embarrassed and felt like she couldn't do the thing that she's best at anymore. And so she's kind of like went into hiding. And so the label was like, we don't have new music. Greatest Hits album, guys. Mm-hmm. So they do release a Greatest Hits compilation in 2004. It became the fastest selling Greatest Hits album ever by a female artist. She did manage to record three new songs that like, basically she tried to record a new album, but her singing voice wasn't strong enough. So they took the three out songs and just stuck them on this Greatest Hits mm-hmm. album. Um, and she kind of just came to terms with, you know, she lost her voice forever and she never sing again. Jeez. So while she's in this deep pit of despair from potentially career ending shit, she and Mutt separate in May 2008 because he left her for her best friend. So fuck him. Fuck you, Mutt. And she equates the divorce to being similarly intense to when she lost her parents. Oh, God. Poor thing. And she felt like she was at a permanent end and fell into a really deep depression for a long time. Like, three-ish years is when we next hear from her. Um, But she does eventually, like get through it starts to return to songwriting mm-hmm. and relearning how to sing with her new voice and then we meet the hero of all heroes unbeknownst as to what is happening in her life because she's very private and hasn't shared any of this at this point lionel richie reaches out to her management and is like hey i'm working on like a duets album can which and i be interested in singing endless love with me and she was just like no no mm-hmm. just just a polite no and he was like well, I, I really want this to happen. Like, will she do it with me? And she keeps declining, keeps declining, keeps declining. And he's just like, can I talk to her, please? Like, yeah. I want to see why she's turning me down. And she, uh, like, explained what was going on. And she did, she's like, I don't think I can do it. He's like, well, can we just try? Like, just try. Like, let's get in a studio and just try. It may crash and burn, but let's try. And so she, he finally convinces her to record. But she gets to pick the place. And they pick the Bahamas. Even Lionel Richie was like, yeah, why not? I ain't going to complain. Yeah. No kidding. And he gets her in the studio and gets her to do this song. And he was so nice about it and wouldn't let her give up. And they did it together. And she got her confidence back. Aww. So thank Good you. Good Lionel. Lionel Richie. She works really hard. And in 2012, after doing some of these duets, she's on the Michael Buble Christmas album. Like a couple other duets at this time. She decides, I'm back, baby, and announces a Vegas residency. <laughs> uh, ha, ha, ha. That's quite a jump. It's smart because you're not bumping around from city to city. Yeah. It's a much more relaxing schedule. Yeah, totally. But also, I mean, she was still terrified going into it because she didn't know how it was going to work. Um, and eventually she does get back into a place where she can go into the studio and record. She, but then it's a different roadblock. Because this is her first album without Mutt since she did her debut that she had no control over. Yeah. And so she was like, fuck it. I'm going to write all everything by myself and get to know myself again and just be creative and whatever happens, happens. And so her fifth studio album now is her most vulnerable record because, I mean, right, it's her most personal record. It came out September 29th, 2017. 
where else would it debut but number one on the Billboard 200? Um, and interestingly enough, this is her first album to reach number one in all major territories. I don't know what those major territories are. <laughs> there was no source, but we're going to say all major territories. And because of the success of this, she announced her second Vegas residency, which opened on December 6, 2019. Uh-oh. So you can imagine how that went. Uh-oh. We got a couple weeks in, and um, it was supposed to run for two years. Mm. It ran for like six weeks, and uh, the world shut down. That sucks. Yeah. I scrolled way too far. So, fast forward to July 2022, Netflix released a documentary spanning her entire career called Not Just a Girl, which dropped simultaneously with a compilation album on Spotify called Not Just a Girl, The Highlights, but it featured a new song, which Mm -hmm. is the title track. At the end of the documentary, she hints like, I'm wrapping up my next album, I'm really excited about it. It's like all we get. So in September, it was announced that she just dropped a new single out of nowhere, Waking Up Dreaming, and was like, surprise, sixth studio album comes out February 3rd, 2023. It's called Queen of Me. Can't wait to see you. And I was like, fuck yes. <laughs> um, personally, I'm obsessed with these singles. There's three, four out if you count, not just a girl. There's Waking Up Dreaming. I can't think of the second one because it's a slower song and I don't listen to it as much. And then Giddy Up, which is an absolute bop and everyone should go listen to it. Um, so let's talk about her her legacy and her, you know, I can't think of another word. Legacy. <laughs> her, her legacy. Because despite being very, very successful, mm-hmm. she's always been a little bit divisive within the country music genre because there are purists out there who are like, you can't mix pop and country. Does not work. You cannot genre blend. Yeah. Her biography um, says in his book, most critics accused her of diluting country music with bland, anthemic hard rock techniques and shamelessly selling her records with sexy videos. That's, but they're, you know, they're just mad. They're just big mad because they didn't think of it. But she's not the first to do this because Garth Brooks... Got accused of the same shit, but because he's a man, they forgave him. Yep. So, whatever. There it is. The country music industry fucking sucks. Uh, so, and then you get into the 90s, where she, she starts to get hate because she wore crop tops. That is it. That is the, that is the reason. That's it. Her midriff was exposed, and it pissed people off. Like, CMT. People need to get a, a day job. CMT banned her video for what made you say that. That's that's what it was, was her midriff was showing. That's stupid. That was what was too sensual for CMT at the time. That's dumb. She just wanted to show off her belly. Like, I don't know why that pisses people off so much. So all of her success has earned her the honorific na- nickname, the Queen of Country Pop. BBC Online has described her as the real queen of pop, citing her influence on artists such as Megan Trainer, Britney Spears, Taylor Swift, and Haim. As one of country music's first crossover stars, they claim that Shania Twain's success as a crossover artist demonstrates that she was doing the Taylor Swift thing before Taylor Swift even arrived, which we all know that Taylor Swift cites Shania Twain as one of her biggest influences. Yeah. So, you know, Taylor could not exist without Shania paving the road before her. Crazily enough, Post Malone 
Is a huge Shania Twain fan? That actually doesn't surprise me one bit. I want nothing more. Nothing more in my life than a Post Malone country album. I just want like a Post Malone compilation album. I want a country album. Have you heard his cover of Brad Pace? I want a country album. I have. He's in the wrong genre. Post Malone has said that Shania Twain was his childhood crush. Aw. Which... Then Shania Twain reciprocated the love and covered Post Malone's song Rockstar during the AMAs one year. She would love, apparently, you know, before the pandemic ruined everything, she wrote a song for the two of them to record together. It exists somewhere. We need it. That needs to happen. Drop the Malone cut, Shania. (laughs) The Malone cut. (laughs) Um, And then, as we all know, Harry Styles loves Shania Twain and... They both got to live their separate dreams of working together at Coachella 2022. So let us, I literally had to snippet tool her awards and just drop it in here because there were so many. So let us fly by them real quick. 1999 Entertainer of the Year by both the Academy of Country Music and the Country Music Association. She was the first non-U.S. citizen to win this award. Mm. She's ranked number seven in CMT's 40 Greatest Women of Country Music in 2002. In 2003, she was inducted into, Can- I almost said Canada, Canada's Walk of Fame. In the city of Timmins, Ontario, where she grew up, renamed a street for her, gave her Aww. a key to the city, and built the Shania Twain Center in her honor. That's nice. In 2005, she was invested as an officer into the Order of Canada. I don't know what that means either. I'm assuming it's big. I'm not Canadian. She was inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. She received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2011. 2016, she was declared the Artist of a Lifetime by CMT. 2017, they gave her her own exhibit at the Country Music Hall of Fame. Aww. In 2018, she was the second recipient of the CCMA Generation Award. In 2022, she got the Poets Award from the Academy of Country Music, honoring her songwriting. In October of 22, she was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. With Taylor Swift. And in December 22, she got the Music Icon Award at the People's Choice Award. Aww. So, like... Legend. Legend. I actually... I meant to put it in my notes, but uh, I propose to initiate her as... Oh! A saint. Oh, first saint of the year? The first saint of the year, Shania Twain, The Crossover. Oh, I love that title. Shania Twain, the crossover. the crossover. I'm so excited. First saint of the year. First saint of the year. 2023 saint. Oh it, my God, I can't wait to work on her art. It, it has to happen. Like, no, no I one, agree. No one other than Taylor has done it like this. I agree. You don't make it out of country music. I'm Not fine with that. You need to make it out of country music, but you know what I'm saying. Shania Twain. Shania Twain, Stream the crossover. new album on Friday. Thank you for listening. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Good Pods. Special thanks to Death of Fawn for our intro riff. You can visit our website at sheilrockyou.com. There you can find our socials, show notes, contact us, and merch. Other than that, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. <laughs>